0: You know, for someone in human resources is if you make rules that are fair and reasonable and clearly understood and people can apply them, then those are fair workplace rules.
1: That's Jeff Tudhope of Tudhope HR, and this is What's Next, an SPM podcast mini series. Welcome to What's Next, a series within the SBM podcast platform focused on helping employers and employees navigate the reopening of the economy from the COVID-19 shutdown. We've interviewed a cross-section of professionals to help provide insights and ideas and inspiration, all with an eye to smoothing out the inevitable bumps in the road we're all going to face to figure out what our new business reality will look like. Each podcast is informal, about 20 to 25 minutes long, and hopefully chock full of nuggets of wisdom that are practical and easy to navigate. My guest on this episode is none other than Jeff Tuthope of Tuthope HR. Jeff is an HR professional with broad experience across a number of sectors and with a solid foundation in all aspects of HR management. Jeff has a great ability to analyze, drill things down into clear and concise understandings of facts and solutions. In our conversations, we weave through a number of very practical concepts and takeaways for employers of all sizes, from policy, procedure, employment contracts, avoiding the pitfalls of bringing employees back into the workplace after an extended work from home experiment. And finally, we land on culture, which shows the breadth of Jeff's expertise ranging from the very technical right to the hard to measure intangibles. I hope you enjoy. This is a great listen with tons of takeaways. Without further ado, Here's my conversation with Jeff. I guess the the best spot to start is if you can give me Paul's notes version of like what you do and and uh, your background and kind of pre-COVID in terms of the kind of stuff that you worked on.
0: Okay, yeah. So then generally like my business, Tud Hope HR does like day-to-day human resources support for businesses that don't have internal HR or who maybe have somebody that don't have you know, the specific skills to deal with a particular type of issue. So a little bit more depth. So I I got what I consider to be a depth of experience and a a broad scope uh, in my practice from being at the city because there were unionized, non-union, six different bargaining units, uh, you know, ranging from inside outside workers, nursing home, fire department, all of those sorts of issues. And then sometimes even the, the, commissions or whatever like the uh, transit or the Wood call us or the library so I saw a lot uh there and and even within the human resources department you have your generalists your benefits people payroll so when you're in labor relations like I was and you're dealing with sort of the contract or the legal aspect you really do have to support all of those different areas so from from being there and and uh doing more than you know a surface level sort of support to these different departments and sections, um, I was able to, to get a lot of depth. So when Tud HR started, it was really going to focus on workplace investigations, some of the more intense stuff I was doing, like pay equity, job evaluation. Um, but then when you get to know businesses, small and medium-sized ones in particular, you realize that they may have those issues, but what they really need is, is their, their needs taken care of today. Um, or things that have been nagging them and they don't really know the solution to. So I kind of pivoted a few years ago and started offering uh, agreements where I would be the HR resource for these businesses. And that has really been what's taken off. Um, It also allows me to stay sharper because you're not just focusing on a few different types of issues. You're really seeing everything. So um, pre-COVID, it was just, kind of like business as usual, you get a call um, that, you know, they're asking you something about the Employment Standards Act or to revise a contract or write a contract or all of these various different human resources matters that can come up. Um, But as soon as, yeah, I think in the weeks leading up to early March, clients were starting to wonder what was going on. Um, We didn't even really know how bad it was going to be in North America or what the governments were going to do. So, you know, once we got to a point where businesses were shutting down, immediately it kind of switched to, um, can I reduce people's pay? Can I reduce their hours? Can I lay people off? And then uh, as the different benefits were being announced, so whether it was the CERB or the wage subsidy, if you remember, there was the remittance, reduction in in payroll remittance first, and then the wage subsidy came out after. Um, and all of those were being announced by the prime minister on like a Tuesday and then the details wouldn't come out for a few days. So you're trying to field these questions. How do I use this? Does it apply to me? And the details weren't readily available, but then they were made available. So, um, everything really became related to that. Um, and, uh, particularly with wage reductions and layoffs, um, you know, some clients that i that I have dealt with or phone calls I got were from employers that didn't even have written contracts with their employees, Yeah, Um, which is surprising to someone, you know, in in my field, but for whatever reason, that's the truth. So, um, unfortunately, if you don't have a contract with language that says you can lay someone off, then laying them off could be deemed a constructive dismissal. Yeah. the the funny thing is I was being asked questions about whether or not because of COVID you would really actually be found to have committed a constructive dismissal if you laid someone off and didn't have a contract or language in the contract. Same with wage reductions and hours reductions. Am I going to actually, you know, get in trouble legally if I do this? And I wasn't sure because nobody knew. Mm-hmm. And then all, and then all of a sudden this is going back to March and here we are in June. Yeah. And like a week and a half ago we find out that there's a regulation to the employment standards act and now certain employees who had their wages reduced or who were laid off are not are going to be exempt from making claims yeah so you know it would have been really nice if that happened back in march and <laughs> the businesses that needed to do these things were uh, were you know were wondering whether they could uh, but here we are it is retroactive by the way so if, yeah. if, if there were employers who made those decisions and laid people off or reduced their pay back in march I think that that regulation is active as of March first, and it continues until six weeks after the um, date of the emergency declaration yeah. is terminated. Uh, it's just a little bit late to the ball game, in my opinion. Difficult right now to know and to cover off everything, which makes it harder for people like me to advise. Yeah, you know. So do you do you give the practical advice that says I understand the situation your business is in, and here's what I think you could do? Yeah. Or do you say, well, this is what the law says. And, and that's all I can tell you. Like, it, it was very, it was challenging. Yeah.
1: Um, Before we get into maybe the COVID stuff, talk about, like, the importance of, because that probably highlights a lot of this, right? If you had an employment contract in place prior to COVID, mm-hmm. um, you probably, if it's done properly, were in better position than someone who doesn't, right? So talk about the importance well, yeah, of that. So.
0: If you're non-unionized, then the Employment Standards Act governs your employment relationship with employees. So that sets minimum standards. Um, so typically where a contract is silent, you would go to the legislation, so you can go to the terms of the Employment Standards Act. So um, you know, my understanding is that most situations in which a person's working for someone under a verbal agreement, they're being paid in accordance, other than their wage, they're being paid in accordance with the Employment Standards Act. Um, the problem is it doesn't cover up everything. so Um, We talked about layoffs, if if you want to lay somebody off, you actually need to specifically give yourself that right and they need to agree to it in the employment contract. Um, Also um, termination language, so if you were to terminate somebody's employment, there are minimum standards that you have to comply with around termination pay, Um, but you mentioned common law a minute ago, so there are other potential costs or damages that can be awarded based on a person's age or or the length length of employment, um, their likelihood of finding other work and and, and things like that. So you can write into an employment contract restrictions that would prevent somebody from being entitled to any common law damages um, and only to the minimum set out in the employment standards act. If you don't have a contract, you don't have that agreement and you basically are exposing yourself to additional liability. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I think that from a employment security of employment perspective, most employees would prefer to have an employment contract with their employer. Um, it sets out the expectations that both parties have and what the obligations are uh, around employment. Um, you know, if somebody says they want an additional week vacation and it's agreed to, and you don't have an employment contract and then the manager that agreed to that leaves, how, how, who's it up to, right? Yep. Where's, the, where's the record of that agreement? So um, I guess just from a risk perspective and to limit exposure to litigation, it, it's a good practice to always have a written employment contract, and it's not a difficult thing to do. Once you establish one, you can amend it to, um, to whatever the you know terminology is or the terms are of, uh, of any other employee that you hire.
1: Would it, like the employment contract would supersede any employer policies, correct? Like if employer had a handbook that had vacation policy and overtime policy and those kind of things, if the employee had a, if the employee's contract Mm. is deviates from that, the contract Mm. rules, correct? Provided that the contract complies
0: with the law, then yeah, yeah, the terms of the contract would supersede an an employee or company policy. Right. But those things should never, I mean, it's really important to make sure those things aren't inconsistent because it can lead to confusion.
1: Yeah, um, I'm, I'm yeah. sure you see tons of that in
0: small business. Well, depending on the size of the business and the type of work people do, it can be multiple things. It can be employment contracts, collective agreements. Um, so what those are kind of the same thing depending on the context, right, union or non-union. But the, the contract can conflict with policies that are rolled out. Mm -hmm. and then when the government rolls out regulations um, they can change the way that those policies should be written and those things aren't always amended in time yeah Um, so you can have people who are following an old version of you know a government regulation um, maybe because they haven't been trained on the new one their employer didn't know about the new one Uh, they just like the old one and they don't think anybody's ever going to check yeah. You know, I, I can think of some <laughs> specific examples of, of things like that occurring. So, yeah, yeah it, that's just another thing from a process perspective of trying to make sure that you're always mindful, not just of, of things that change, but all of the knock on effects of that. So, yeah, is this going to impact my policies, my contracts, et cetera?
1: So if you think, uh, as I t- talked about at the start, if you think about businesses reopening, bringing people back to work, yeah. Um, What would you say are some of the kind of key things that the employers need to think about other than the obvious, like the safety protocols around COVID, but in terms of bringing people back to the workplace, like what are the, the sort of key pieces where they need to think about whether it's policy or process or just having something documented?
0: Well, documentation is important because most of the people who are coming back to work who haven't been at work are going to be having to do things they didn't have to do before, whether it's not touching certain things, wearing PPE, you know, dealing with customers in a certain way, um, dealing with their coworkers in a certain way. Uh, there, there are going to be, we'll just call them rules, protocols, whatever new procedures. So um, some of those are handed down provincially or from health units, but others are specific to the work that people are doing. So it's up to the employers to make sure that they're kind of implementing these guidelines properly but however they choose to do that, you need to make sure that the employees are aware. Um, so the best way to do that is just to clearly communicate it, um, whether it's, it should be in a written policy, probably email things to people, make sure that they're reviewing stuff. Um, one thing would be to maybe do like a mock interaction with a customer or a mock, you know, procedure that might be a common thing so that people say like, this is what it looks like. This is you know, how you're mm-hmm. supposed to do it. I bought I bought fish at Loblaws yesterday and I had to stand like four feet away from the glass display where the, where the, where the fish was on the other side. And I kind of said what I wanted. And then they put the, the wrapped up fish on a tray to the side, which I then, you know, retrieved it from. Yeah. Um, so that seems like it's a simple thing, but somebody had to come up with that process and tell the staff, this is how you're going to do it. Um, so it's only fair to employees that you, um, that you communicate what those expectations are. The fact is people want to know that they're coming back to a safe workplace. They're probably thinking about safety more than they ever did before COVID. Yeah. Um, so it's managers and supervisors who are making these rules. And typically the managers and supervisors, even in smaller businesses, aren't the ones on the front lines. If you want to say frontline, um, but they are the ones making the rules. So you need to show that you're really considering the best interests of the people who these protocols are applying to making sure they understand what they are listening to their feedback because they might be seeing the strengths and weaknesses of these procedures and have good recommendations. Um, so it's really just, you know, be patient with it. Don't look at it as, okay, we're going back. Let's get it done as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. Um, but thinking it through a little bit and, uh, as it, as it relates to PPE, you know, it depends. You, you see people, if you go into stores, employees—some people wearing masks, some people not yeah. wearing masks.
1: It's all over uh, the map.
0: Yeah, and and I mean that's like I mean the employees too, though, right? Yep. Like some, yeah. Some some employees are, some aren't. So I imagine it's optional, but in, unless you're in certain fields, um, I think it should be optional. I think if somebody it feels more comfortable coming to work wearing a mask. Um, then they should be allowed to. And, um, you know, realistically, if an employer can provide the PPE, even if it's optional, uh, I think it just goes a long way to show employees that you're really thinking about their best interest.
1: Now would they, would it be the onus on the employer to have the employee, like if they have specific protocol to sign off on that they have read and reviewed, or is it enough that they just, here's the process that we're following? Sign off is not,
0: like a requirement, but it it allows you to show that this person agreed to whatever policy you put in front of them. However, you could still argue that they didn't understand it, that they were in a hurry and their supervisor said sign this and they signed it. So it it goes a certain way, but it's not the be-all and end-all of proving that the person knew and didn't comply if that's an issue. I think more importantly than than having a sign-off, which I'm not saying don't do, um, is having your supervisors and managers be prepared to have conversations with people like reasonable, fair conversations that aren't accusatory or um you know aggressive in any way, but just reminders of, of what the processes are and why yeah you know, we we know just from probably talking to people we know that as individuals, everybody is taking this to a different kind of level of of severity, right? Some people think it's overblown. Some people think it's like the worst thing in the world. So employees may have those perspectives. Customers may have those perspectives, but from the employment perspective, what it comes down to, you know, for someone in human resources is if you make rules that are fair and reasonable and clearly understood and people can apply them, then those are fair workplace rules and even if you think that they're overblown you're expected to uh, comply with them while you're in the workplace um so that gives you the right to make those rules but the extent to which people are going to want to follow them or accept them really does come down to the way they're communicated and if somebody you know forgets to put their mask back on after they go outside for their break or, you know, they, they pick up something they're not supposed to pick up. Yeah. I think a simple reminder and uh, and some kind of calm reassurance is, is the best way to go about it. Um, this is a situation most people, all of us have never dealt with before. So the last thing you really want to do is discipline somebody for making a mistake.
1: Maybe yeah. it's a different
0: conversation if somebody's intentionally not following the protocols,
1: but Yeah, kind of two takeaways, right? The devil's in the detail in terms of making sure you don't assume people know what to do and then cutting some slack when you know for people because they've never, this is all brand new. Right. So, yeah. Um, So we, we talked about the, you talked about the employment contracts as kind of a key piece that hopefully employers had in place. Anything else that you think is like super important right now in terms of policy or procedure that employers should have in place outside of the obvious like the, the safety stuff?
0: Yeah. So well, one thing that I think employers might be lacking on is, um, having joint health and safety committees. So most employers are going to be required to have uh, a joint health and safety committee. And depending on how big, how many employees you have, that determines how many people are on the committee. Um, but typically you would need employee representatives and you would need at least I think one management representative at the sort of the smallest size. Yeah. Um, so if there was ever a situation where someone felt like they were not in a safe situation at work, that those concerns should go to that joint health and safety mm-hmm. committee. Um, if you don't have one and the person contacts the ministry of labor and they come into the workplace, they're going to ask who's on, who the worker rep is. Yeah. And if you, if you haven't set the committee up, they're going to give you an order to, to set it up and there's training that's involved with the members of the committee and things like that. So if you don't have a joint health and safety committee, you should. Yeah. That's Um, a good one. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you know, we're talking about generally COVID and people going back to work, it's a safety issue. It's the, right. Like, and and we're trying to make sure that customers and, and workers are safe. So if anything comes up pertaining to safety, uh, until we've kind of resolved this situation, it's going to need to go to one of those committees. Um, so set up a joint health and safety committee if you don't have it set
1: up. Yeah. Um, and what, in terms of accommodations? so, uh, ties into the safety piece, but what accommodations might the employer be required to make? Like, obviously the physical distancing stuff is probably yeah, pretty safe to say that's a required accommodation. Anything right. So, else?
0: well, okay. So the provincial government has a list of, it's like 60 different types of work, you know, landscaping, manufacturing, all kinds of different things. And they give Recommended guidelines for how to safely return to work in those mm-hmm. environments. These came out well in in a, a week or so before the golf courses opened, I think. Um, yeah. But there were, but I mean, it was a lot of different industries, and um, so that's helpful. Obviously, whatever the local health units are requiring should be complied with. And from an accommodation perspective, I guess if you're going to allow people to wear PPE, if it makes them feel safer, even though it's not required. You could call that an accommodation. Yeah. Like pr- provide masks for staff who want masks. Um, you know, but other than that, I would say it's it's business as usual with the required restrictions. Yeah, that's kind of what we're kind of going back into. Anything else is up to an employer if they want to go above and beyond those.
1: restrictions. Yeah. the wild card might be mental health. Right, is that if you have like if you have people who are coming back and to the workplace and you know, whether they had got kids at home or they got a parent, like a a grandparent or a parent that's in some sort of long-term care facility or whatever, right. That, um, so the person's coming back to the workplace with a ton of stress from being at home because that, I guess assume it's just like any other thing where you, you have to accommodate that employee as best you can to undo hardship. Right.
0: Yeah. So if you get into the undue hardship and and that type of accommodation, then you're kind of working with like potential disability, right? So there's, there's stress that is caused by your kids being off school and your parent maybe being at risk and COVID kind of going around. Um, And then you got to come to work and try to be productive. And then there's stress that you're like seeing a medical professional about, and maybe you've actually got some verified, um, whether it's a disability or just something that requires you to be able to have some accommodation. So I would say in general, if you take away the actual like uh, disability perspective of it, employers should be trying to support workers as much as they can all the time, whether it's yeah. during COVID or not. So, um, you know, understand that when people are dealing with difficulties in their personal life, you maybe want to have an employee assistance program or something that can help people with that. Um, or managers who are just willing to sit down and have conversations with people, uh, you know, things like that. So training around health and safety is is important all the time. Um, If it's a disability where somebody is actually having a diagnosed mental health, is dealing with a diagnosed mental health issue, um, then hopefully their physician or their psychiatrist would be able to prescribe what some of those restrictions might be and and how they could be accommodated. Um, And then you would look at that and, you know, undue hardship may come into play um it just depends on the circumstances in in many cases in in my experience where there's a mental health situation that could lead to an undue hardship that person is most likely going to be unwell enough that they would probably qualify for some sort of a, a disability yeah benefit.
1: yeah if the employer is aware that there's an issue like the onus is on them to like ask the employee if they need help right so is the is that kind of health and safety representative the best resource in terms of making sure people have a place like the employee has a place to go to speak up if they're not comfortable say going to a manager or something like that
0: so yes because that health and safety representative is probably a co-worker yeah um, but when you talk about employee or obligations around whether it's identi- like identifying or acting on mental health issues or anything even like if you, go, if you go and look at harassment or violence yeah. and those sorts of things um, it's always the employer's obligation so if they were reasonably aware of it they need to act yeah. Um, but yeah, like if you're going to implement a process where you want people to speak up if they're dealing with any of those sorts of concerns, whether it's concerns around whether the workplace is safe enough and whether the protocols in place are, are, are working, or whether they're just stressed out and uh, and having some issues in that regard, um, letting them know who they can go to is always good. And one of the one of the biggest deterrents of people who don't address problems in their workplace is they didn't know who to go to yeah, um, or they didn't really, even though they kind of, maybe they were told who to go to, they never really felt like it would be supported. Yeah. Um, so having a worker rep or, or a health and safety committee, if you're, if you're obligated to have one is going to also address that problem. Um, but people should be told, you know, if they don't, for whatever reason, want to go and speak with the worker representative, that doesn't mean they can't go to their manager or anybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, m- mental health in particular, I think you want to identify it and support people. So whoever they feel like they need to tell, they should be able to go and
1: tell. Yeah. So part of like the protocol of bringing people back to work maybe is if you need help, here are your options, ABC kind of thing. And they yeah. can pick, pick what they're most comfortable with.
0: Yeah. These are... As, well, I, I do sort of things like this all the time, but they're, they're relatively straightforward procedures to establish as soon as yeah. you talk to an employer and you kind of understand the structure of the business. You yeah. can put that into writing in, in a pretty clear way. Yeah. Um, and then you, and then the, the key part there is communicating it to the staff so they all understand. You make sure that, you know, union or non-union, that the employee, employees understand that the pro, when you're establishing the protocols, you've got their best interests in mind. Um, in particular, their health and safety, I think that's
1: the key point the companies that are that actually care about their employees that do a pretty good job of kind of cult the culture stuff, maybe the softer stuff mm-hmm. um, you know i I think they get rewarded during this time because when people get booted out and they're all working at home, they're more likely to chip in and and like stay productive yeah. uh, and do what they need to do, whereas You know, the companies that that don't, that have like crummy culture and, you know, the employees aren't treated fair or or it's like unequal across the board. It's not that different.
0: If you look at this culture thing from uh, the work from home, like nobody would try it because they didn't know if it would work and they didn't want to take the chance. Yeah. Then they had to have people work from home. And yeah, sure. Some employers... Um, whereas we're hearing about Facebook keeping 30% of their staff working from home. So it's different, but a lot of these companies would have never tried it and they probably had employees clamoring for it. That goes to the culture thing, where if you build the culture, it will pay dividends in the long run,
1: 100%. but it takes
0: time and effort and doing things that you don't see a direct correlation to sales or profit. Yeah. So, and it, it just looks like an expense because it's time. Yeah. Um, and so they don't try it and then they never realize the benefits on the other end.